Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast sponsored by MWW. My name is John Reynolds, the host. Uh, runners and riders this week are Oliver Shaw, the new business editor of the Sunday Times, who is talking about his new book on the controversial retail entrepreneur Philip Green. We've also got short interviews with British fashion designer Tamara Mellon and Hamish Davies, the chief growth officer at Wavemaker, the media agency. Uh, that was done in Cannes. Uh, he's talking about the advertising festival. But first up and sat opposite me is Karen Stacey, chief executive of digital cinema media, the cinema advertising house which controls over 80% of the market and handle, handles ads for the likes of cinema giants Odeon and Cineworld. Now thanks very much very much for joining me Karen. Uh, the news hook for this interview is DCM is celebrating its 10th anniversary uh, this month so congratu- congratulations on that first. Thank um, you. Do you think 10 is a, well, well welcome and do you think 10 is a significant milestone and how are you actually celebrating it? Uh, thanks John and also thank you uh, very much for this opportunity. Um, we do think 10 years is a, is a great milestone because in those last 10 years you know cinema's in great health Okay. I think there's lots of uh, what you would uh, maybe wrongly name traditional media that have seen challenges around audiences over the last 10 years. And the cinema audience, actually, in those 10 years, despite all the competition, is pretty flat. Okay. Um, we have uh, advanced in very much digital projection and opportunities for advertisers. So we do think it's a great time to celebrate. We're having a small drinks party next Wednesday. Uh, the 11th it right. happens to now clash with the World Cup semi-final <laughs> but but play, no fears for the people that are coming because we are uh, we have now um, managed to get a screen there so we will be showing the football but we are celebrating with our cinemas our advertisers and our agency friends on that evening okay so how long just, just how long have you been chief exec for now it's i've been chief exec since the beginning of 2015 okay so okay so let's we'll, we'll come back to talk about cinema in more detail later it'd be great to get your uh take on some of the um uh new stories uh in media and advertising at the moment now obviously there's been a lot of chat about the advertising association and other industry bodies like nabs and wackle have joined forces to launch uh, the initiative uh, Time2. Uh, in a nutshell, it's addressing the problems of uh, sexual harassment in the advertising industry. It's looking at finding out the extent of sexual harassment and the ways to combat it. Uh, results have come out from a survey of 3,500 uh, men and women working in advertising and marketing communications. Uh, more than one in four respondents said that you're being sexually harassed while working in the in- industry. And I think 69% of those who had been sexually harassed have experienced it in the last... Uh, five years, 28% in the last 12 months. Now, those figures would suggest that the industry has a problem. First of all, has DCM, have you actually been invited to join Time uh, Time 2? And do you think sexual harassment is a particular problem in media and advertising at the moment? So we are a supporter of Time 2. Yeah. Um, We are very interested in it. I'm also a member of Wackle, a big supporter of NABs. Um, and we do a lot with the advertising association. So I feel like as a as a company, we are involved in industry issues. I feel that as an industry, we are an industry full of people. Yeah. That's what we have. That is our point of difference. And we have a duty to make sure that people within our industry are looked after. Okay. They're, they're our sort of duty of care, yeah. I think, is even more important in this world of sort of where there's an increase in mental health challenges mm. too, that we we do uh, support surveys like this. 
I was shocked mm. at the numbers I saw. Mm. Um, I personally have never been mm. um, affected in this way, um, and I would, um, I would hope sure. that we wouldn't have those those numbers within in DCM. But to be honest, I think it's probably still shockingly a reflection of society. Yeah. As much as it is a reflection of our industry, okay. um, and that's that's one thing you know. As an industry, we are part of society, so we do have responsibility. So you you think it, 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 these figures could be similar in whether it's in the travel industry or, or the banking industry? It's not particular to the you know the advertising and media industry. Then I think there could be. Okay, right. I mean, I mean, there is another argument. Uh, obviously, it's got a lot of uh, plaudits. This initiative. Um, do you think there's a need for for this, you know, big joint initiative? Uh, I mean, I guess organisations like DCM they could, you know, go about combating sexual harassment themselves, and shouldn't the AA be spending its limited resources on promoting advertising instead of combating something which, as I say, individual companies could could um, perhaps deal with themselves? I think, as I said, I think we are an industry of people, yeah. um, and we can only be as good as our people can be motivated and, you know, enjoy coming to work, etc. So, as say the the AA taking part of this being a responsibility of them, mm. I think is a really good thing. Okay, so I also picked up in a, a recent article in Campaign mag- Magazine uh, when you argued you it's quite unusual you argued you didn't like the term the snowflake generation. So why don't you like the snowflake gener- the term snowflake generation? I don't like labels. Okay. I think it's very dangerous to label people. I think I've got a I've got a um, sales force here or a company, um, and it varies from nineteen years of age to you know fifty eight years of age, mm. and they everyone has different needs, mm. and I would not label every eighteen year old that I meet the same in the same way, and I mm. think that I think that is. Uh, I think it's an excuse sometimes for bad leadership yeah. and I think it's unfair on the people that are being labelled um, so okay. I just as a principle I am strongly against labels okay I guess it's just maybe it's easy, easy shorthand isn't it for pe- people like journalists but I mean I guess there is a difference isn't there in terms of uh, the younger generation millennials react differently to uh, the older generation to I don't know things like jokes and maybe there is something in it, but I, I think you're right about the the the, the, the labelling thing. I know, you- John. I'll pull you up on there because I do think the whole thing about jokes, sexist jokes, were never on. No, they were that, never that's right. True. No, they were never. So maybe we've just given people more of a voice. Yeah. But let's not, let, not let's not think they were okay in 1980 and they're not okay now. They were never okay. Yeah. Okay. And then the, the other term you don't like is is hot desking too, which you um, I think you mentioned you said is a is a sort of euphemism for for cost cutting. Is that right? I challenge the benefits of hot desking. Yeah. I challenge the. I've not seen any information apart from saving costs that has shown that a company's productivity has increased. I think we are, I think a lot in the world has changed, but changing human nature takes millions and millions of years. And on the majority of people like routine, they like know where Mm. they're going, they don't like surprises. Mm. And I think to make people 
quite unsettled on their journey to work as mm. in you might not have a desk to sit at or you're going to sit with mm. someone you don't know mm. I'm I'm not sure of the productivity in that okay. and the, the places I know that do hot desk in most people say they sit in exactly the same place yeah I think you're right so I guess you don't have it here I guess one argument is it sort of democratises the um, organisation doesn't it so people um, you know people who are, are, are lower down and um, maybe get to sit next to senior people and things like that is, is that not the argument for it i think you can do that by having open plan you can also if you're a good leader you lead by as they would say that management by walking about yeah if you don't know all of your Mm. team as a leader that's part of your that's that's down to down to you not making sure someone they can sit at a desk that's next to you I think that's just a poor excuse for bad leadership. Okay. Um, okay. So the the gender pay gap's obviously been a, another big issue this year. Uh, DCM didn't disclose your figures. Why is that? Because our company is less than two hundred and fifty people. Okay. And to be honest, I would be quite quite happy to disclose our figures. Um, I think they just went. They probably had enough data collection going on with companies yeah. above two fifty. Um, we at DCM have an exec board which is 50% women so we're quite um, equal at the senior level the other thing that we make very transparent and clear is that certainly when there's more than one person in a role we have a salary um, pay bracket Um, and so whether you're you know so if you're qualifying to be a business director the salary will start at X and the most it will be paid is Y, right. and you're somewhere between that, whether you're male or female, okay. and, and you, you really, it's probably determined on experience. Is that quite unusual, that then, or not? I don't know. It's, okay. the, way, it's the way I work, though. Okay, that's Because, I mean, obviously, uh, aside from yourself, there are a lot of uh, women in senior jobs in media advertising. You've got Carolyn McCall at ITV, Alex Mahone at Channel 4. You've got, obviously got a number of senior women at, at media agencies too. Uh, but if you looked broadly at the gender pay gap figures across advertising, particular media agencies and advertising ages, agencies, um, none of them really screamed out female-friendly. Do you think there is sort of the, a chasm maybe where a lot of women are getting to the top, but that rung below that women are struggling to get those jobs for, I don't know, a number of reasons, I guess? I think, I mean, I do think that there's got to be support from both sides. Yeah. I think that there is support for women pushing women and and men. You know, mm-hmm. if men are in the majority of these positions, we need men on side okay. to understand, you know, that, and there's, you know, there's hundreds of facts that prove that in, a, in senior jobs or senior levels mm. where there's a mix a fair mix of men and women, companies do better. Okay, right. So yeah. when you're looking at how you're going to increase your profits next year or your KPIs need to improve mm. or how you're going to make marginal gains, I would mm. urge everyone to look at their mix of ability at a senior level because I bet that if that change, mm. that would be a lot of people's answers. Right, okay. okay, that's great. Okay, so let's um, talk particularly about cinema. Um, so DCM has over 80% of the market. Uh, Pearl and Dean Arrest. Would you like to see uh, that grow further? And would it not be better for more if there was um, more players in the market, for more competition? I guess you'd say no, would you? I I think so. The cinema industry has always been two players mm-hmm. um, for a long time. The reason why um, the 
DCM, I think, is a is in a stronger position is because our shareholders are Cineworld, yeah. Odeon and View. Yeah. Within the cinema marketplace, there was a lot of consolidation yeah. a few years ago, which goes gave those three players the majority of the admissions across the country, okay. which is quite un, quite unusual compared to other companies. Yeah, sure. Do I think there should be one? No, I don't. I think competition is good. I think we uh, work collaboratively with Pearl and Dean. Excuse me, Catherine Jacob, who runs it, is a good friend of mine, and we absolutely... Um, work together to drive cinema but at the same time fight you know like tooth and nail mm. for you know a great idea on our cinemas to compare to Pearl and Dean cinemas the other thing I think she's got a team of a great team of 25 people we've got a team of mm. 70 people here you would just cut the number of people that are talking to advertising agencies about cinema. Mm. So, but you are looking to grow the market share. And I mean, when does it become a monopoly then? But there'll always be, a, a, well, a two. But I mean, are you looking to grow, I mean, you're looking to grow to what, to get 90% of the market or not? Or? No, I think we're, we're, we're happy with our portfolio. Okay. Our portfolio is strong within multiplexes. Yeah. So we have Cineworld, we have Odeon, we have right. View um, and Mass Market. And we are the leaders within the um, independent sector. Mm. So we have the likes of Curzon, we have the yeah. likes of Everyman, we have the likes of Picture House as well, who okay. are the more boutique upmarket. Yeah. So I'm very happy with the portfolio that we have. So you're not looking to grow it or you're not looking to shrink it and you're just happy with the level it's at then, basically? Exactly. Okay, okay. so I did have a look at the... Um, the DCM's uh, financial figures before I came. So, in the year ending December 2016, made a small profit of 168,000. Do you know if DCM will make a profit in the year ending December 2017? So, first of all, DCM is quite an interesting company because we don't. Although we mm-hmm. p- we produce a PNL, we produce yeah. a PNL, and we need to be in credit for auditing reasons. But our profits after costs. And after we paid out the independents who are not owners of ours, mm-hmm. go back to our three main shareholders. So right. D- DCM does not run a PL okay. as in most companies. All our profits go back to our shareholders. Right, okay. But I mean, that's still, um, that doesn't impact on the profit figures itself, does it? I guess it, that is quite a, a complex um, a way of reporting it. But I mean, that, that's usually, that, in terms of profit numbers, you make around 150000 a year, do you? No, it does absolutely okay. impact on profit because if you take, if you take the admissions that we that we okay. monetize, yeah. give them back to exhibitors. Right. Oh, right. Okay. And then you that's take it. the costs off. Okay. The money that's left is a lot more than one hundred sixty-eight thousand. Okay. Right. Okay. That okay. goes straight back okay. to our I'm shareholders. Okay. okay. So let's just talk a bit about the um, the cinematic experience uh, at the moment. Obviously, I guess you could argue you've got you've got heightened competition from the likes of people watching Netflix and and Amazon films at home. How do you how do you compete with that? I mean, again, uh, cinema admissions year on year for the latest figures were flat, but revenues were up. I guess that's people are spending more money in the cinema, are they? So I think a couple of things on that. I think audiences have been pretty flat as I said in my in the intro for the okay. last 10 years I think the unique thing about cinema despite all the competition that's coming out mm. is the theatrical window right so if you want to see Ocean's 8 this yep. weekend there's one place you can see it and that's in the cinema unless you're okay. watching it illegally so the 16 week theatrical window for all the block for every film that goes into cinema 
will remain. Yeah. Okay. And it will remain in the sort of so far in the future unless something radical happens. So that's one unique thing yeah. that you cannot watch what you're watching with us on on sure. Netflix. Yeah. I think there's still the opportunity about people socialising and going out. Yeah. Cinema is still a shared experience. You know, you might have the snazziest kitchen in the world or the best oven. You still go to a restaurant. So the the entertainment and the offering of the content still remains the same. The other thing that's been changing is certainly in the UK yeah. compared to other markets is the customer experience. Sure. So not only have you, Cineworld and Odeon, yeah. investing in their sites. And I'm not sure you've, if you've been to the view in Leicester Square at the moment. Um, which has had a huge refurb. Yeah, they've not okay. only huge kind of seats, they've got bars, they've got yeah. the whole experience is much nicer. And every man cinema where they serve yeah. you food, mm. you know, every man, it's only four years ago, was probably producing about half a million admissions. Mm. Um, by the end of 2020, they think they're going to be nearer six and a half million. Mm. And they're not taking from other people. Mm. They are they are bringing new people to the cinema. And I guess if you're a cinema owner, mm. on average people go in five or six times a year. The theory is, if you make that experience very nice, mm. Mm. people will go seven or eight. Mm. Okay. So some people, I mean, personally, I don't usually do personal things on this. I mean, I, I've been to what Whiteley's in North London and I had this whole the whole meal served to me while I was at the cinema, which I didn't really like. I sort of, sort of impinged on my viewing experience. But I guess a lot of people do like the whole experience of going out, of making it occasion, of, of eating and drinking and sort of a social element to it and just actually watching the film itself. And that's exactly what's happening with the likes of Everyman and Picture House. People are going out for an evening yeah. and happen to be watching the film. Okay, right, okay. So I looked at the slate for next year. I guess uh, you'd be quite optimistic. Toy Story 4, Avengers, Affinity War, uh, Frozen 2, some big films. Huge films. Um, we've got a Bond coming. We've got, um, we've got Star Wars. Um, we've got another Avengers. The Marvel um, portfolio will be back. Yeah. Lego Movie 2 will be back. Um, there's also um, more horror um, with it on chapter two. Um, there'll be another Jumanji. I mean, it's, it's a very varied slate. And I was lucky enough to be in Barcelona just a few weeks ago. And what happens in Barcelona is all the studios bring over their content and produce and and present to Europe. So there's two right. big two big exhibitions every year. One in Vegas mm. for the American audience, and one in Barcelona okay. for the European audience. And the slate, not only for 2019, actually, yeah. the work that's going on for 2020 again. And when you hear, so we, we were lucky enough to see the, um, hear from the producer and the director of Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. And that film took them 10 years to make. Right. And when you hear their passion mm, and their sure. love for that content they're creating, it really is quite special. Okay. Uh, just, just finally, brand safety has been a massive issue, hasn't it, for all types of media. Uh, sorry, in terms of um, uh, for Facebook, uh, brand safety issues at Facebook and, and YouTube. Um, lots of other media like uh, radio and TV claimed uh, that they may benefit from brands uh, uncertain about advertising um, uh, on Facebook and YouTube. Has, has cinema seen any benefit at all or not? Or? I think I think we're very similar. Okay. And you you know you do. We arguably we're the biggest paywall out there. Yeah, sure. You know, people plan their night. 
they pay their money you don't happen to think you know you're going to go and see Ocean's 8 and then you stumble into a horror movie of it yeah. you know you know exactly where you're going so therefore the advertiser knows exactly the content they've been that their ad is being played against and the type of audience that will be receiving their content to so I would argue our you know we're probably the safest environment yeah. of them all okay and then cinema advertising is still a relatively small part of the whole media mix isn't it how, how can it grow that its percentage share of the pie or are you quite happy with you know the percentage that's out at the moment never happy with the percentages out at the moment I think that um, we are in a unique position yeah. where again as a traditional owner we do not have an audience problem we do not have a content problem uh, you could argue we've got a bit of a trade marketing problem because in this world of distraction and second screening mm. and really challenging with impact. Mm. We do brand safety really well. We do impact like nobody else. We do an undistracted audience where everyone's looking forward. They're in a dark room. They're paid to watch your content. Mm. And that's only getting the core proposition of cinema is only getting stronger, not weaker. So we see ourselves of growing mm. we're still growing we've certainly been growing since 2014 i see ourselves as growing more and i think our contribution to a multimedia schedule mm. is having more impact today than it's ever done why have you got a trade marketing problem then which haven't got a trade marketing body or so we're trade marketing we've got a trade if people don't understand sure the power and the contribution mm. that we can make mm then that's the message we've got to do. Mm. If I look at other media, mm. they've got audience problems, mm. they've got content problems, or they don't have any content, mm. and yet they're still doing well within a, within brand spend. So I think it's our duty mm. to tell advertisers and explain to advertisers, and you're right, we don't have a trade body, so it is very much DCM's responsibility, mm. because we're the major uh, sure. player in this market, to educate our advertisers and we take that we take that position really seriously mm. we have a strong marketing insight team we spend disproportionately a huge amount of our company's money mm. on in, investigating the power of our medium and providing insights to our advertisers and our agencies and then telling that message. Mm, okay, but would you like to have a, a, a marketing trade body or not? Or is that, would that work or not? I, I think it's, um, I would hope that most people would say that we're doing a pretty okay. good job. Okay, uh, lastly, I must ask about this. I know it happened some time ago, the whole controversy about the Church of England, mm -hmm. which obviously, I think it's three or four years ago, threatened to take legal action after DCM banned an advert featuring the Lord's Prayer that got a lot of media attention. Has, how's your relationship now with the, the Church of England and have you banned any uh, religious or political ads this year? I guess, John, the lesson there is never believe what you read in the press, mm. um, which was we didn't ban anything. We do not take and have a sales policy for not taking any... Um, political or religious advertising okay. full stop and right. we've always had that rule um, so we certainly didn't ban the Lord's Prayer we do not take that as advertising because we do not feel that it is the right environment for consumers um, 
to be sold religious or political messages mm. and and that that would that was it right okay so for instance you, you don't take any political ads so uh, the advertising station uh, association has got that a uh, great advert for britain hasn't it to show celebrate the role of foreign workers in the ad- advertising industry so you wouldn't take any ads like that then would you i guess we wouldn't take anything that's pushing a political we wouldn't take anything that was pu- pu- pushing a political party mm, so okay. i'm not so we would probably have a debate about whether that was pushing a political okay. message um, mm. or certainly under a political party okay I, th- I think at the time someone from the church of england pointed out if dcm wanted to be consistent and not carrying any ads that have any connection with religious belief i'd like them to cancel all ads linked to christmas as a, a christian festival but i guess that's slightly different isn't it it's, it not is slightly. it's not recruiting for a certain religion Okay, and, and finally, you've obviously, I didn't really touch on this, but you're obviously a well-known figure in media, previously at, at Channel 4 and, and Bauer. Are you, are you still uh, enjoying it as much as you have uh, at the start or, you know, throughout your career and you still, you know, you still think media is as exciting as it always has been? I think media is just, I think it's even more exciting. I think it's, I think the, 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 the challenges and the debates we're having are more interesting. I think the work is getting better and better um, I love the job that I have. I think that I think cinema as a medium um, can only can only can only grow. Okay. Um, and I urge anyone, if you don't believe me, I urge anyone to look at the share price of Everyman Cinemas and Cineworld in the last few years. Not to not not to um, uh, not to not believe that cinema is in a really good place. Okay, Karen Stacey, thanks very much. And coming up next is uh, Oliver Shaw. Hi, is that Oliver? Yes, speaking. Hi, it's John Reynolds. Um, thanks very much for joining me on the, the podcast. Um, first of all, congratulations on the book, uh, Damaged Goods, The Inside Story of Sir Philip Green, The Collapse of BHS and the Death of the High Street. I guess the title is quite self-explanatory, but for the, for the listeners, can you just briefly uh, summarise the book? And also, secondly, you obviously work as a, a business journalist at the Sunday Times. When did you realise that you had enough material as a journalist to um, make it into a book on Sir Philip? So the, the book is a um, it's both a, it's both a human story of epic ambition and talent and ego and greed and yeah. a fatal flaw uh, set against the changing consumer backdrop of the last fifty sixty years. So it's partly a story of one man and his ambition and how that goes awry, and it's partly a story of the times we've been living through and the way uh, consumer spending and the way companies and markets have changed so I first came across the story uh, I became the Sunday Times as retail correspondent in February 2013 yeah and the Sunday Times and Philip Green went back a very long way back to the 80s and they supported him when he was thrown out of his first major venture which was a discount retailer called Amber Day in the early 90s okay so there's a very deep bond, bond between the paper and Philip Green and um, <clears throat> It was tradition that you made your first call to Philip Green as the retail correspondent to introduce yourself because he was the most important single contact in sure. that sector. And so I, I gave him a call and he said, well, you better come and see me. And I went to go and see him in Arcadia's headquarters off Oxford Street. And he, he sat me down and he sort of looked at me mischievously and he said, who do you want to know, Liv? <laughs> right. he, was, he was offering me his contact. Yeah. And um, he went through his... Old Nokia brick and dialed up various people 
and uh, set me up with about five meetings in the course for about 20 minutes and at the end of it he said don't forget your uncle Philip yeah okay and it was that sort of <laughs> very heavy handed yeah. uh, transactional exchange where he'd given me something and he wanted something in return and then the BHS story came about that turned into a big scandal yeah. uh, we investigated that and broke a lot of the stories at the Sunday Times Yeah. and that's where the story from the book came from but it's more than just the account of um, Sunday Times with Philip Green and the Sunday Times with BHS. It's, it's a bigger, bigger story about the nature of business, the nature of ethics, uh, the kind of people who have succeeded, and it's also a slightly nostalgic look back at the era when these when these corporate raiders could come up from yeah. almost nowhere, borrow okay. lots of money from banks like HBOS and take over private companies. So it's fair to say that initially you you had. If you played by his rules, or you had a good relationship with Philip Green initially, and that deteriorated when he didn't like some of the stories that you were writing about in that. Yeah, we had a honeymoon, I would say, about two years. So <laughs> there was a period between 2013 and 2015 where we spoke sporadically. He would deal mainly with my boss, yeah. who was a guy called Dominic O'Connell, who's now the BBC. Yeah, sure. And he held the senior relationship with Green. But I would still deal with him on retail stuff. Um, and it really came unstuck when, in January 2015, uh, Dominic, my boss, took me to one side in the newsroom and said, look, Philip has called in with a scoop. He's going to sell BHS, but there's one caveat. We can't mention the pension fund in the exclusive story if we want to all to ourselves. Right. And it was it was typical green. It was a kind of quid pro quo. And um, we, we ran that story as agreed, but it stuck in my mind. So... Two months later, when he did sell BHS for one pound to this strange company called Retail Acquisitions, mm. it was in my, in my mind that the pension fund was at least one of the driving factors behind the deal. And we quickly investigated Retail Acquisitions, who they were, uh, dug into Dominic Chappelle, the 90% shareholder, uh, found that he had a trail of bust, failed companies behind him, several bankruptcies. No money, as far as we could see. Mm. The whole thing looked like a setup to mm. take BHS and the pension fund off Green's hands into the hands of a patsy who had run it for a few years until it went bust. Right, okay. So, and um, in terms of, I think, uh, reading uh, some of the reviews, so he did actually, Philip Green did threaten you on one occasion, but did, did, did you see, was that genuinely frightening or did you see that as some sort of bravado on his part? He threatened me quite a few times and... Um, it's slightly unbelievable when you think it is. Mm. Because, I mean, however rough and tumble journalism gets, you don't often get mm. billionaires personally slightly violence against you. I would say that um, fairly quickly I took it as cartoon stuff. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say I took it particularly seriously after the first few times. But there, there was real menace to it because that sort of threatening would be combined with legal letters from shillings threatening mm -hmm. to sue you personally and take your house and this kind of stuff and vigorous phone calls lobbying your bosses and your bosses' bosses and their bosses. So it was the combination of things that was quite daunting to deal with because he has a way of sort of coming at you from multiple angles at once. And has he, has he, has he responded to the book at all? Or? No, not at all, actually. Uh, I think he's pursuing a policy of keeping quiet and not feeding any oxygen into the fire. He's... I know, I know he's not happy about it because he's spoken to people I know right, and he's com complained to magazines and papers that have written about it but um, he's not spoken to me 
directly at all. Okay, so I mean, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are involved in advertising and marketing. So, in terms of the marketing uh, behind the book, you obviously work as a well. Congratulations, because I think you have a new the business editor of the Sunday Times, aren't you now? So, did you, Thank you yeah. did extracts were published prior to publication? Did you work with any other papers at all? I saw some reviews. I saw a piece in the Mail. I've seen reviews of the, but you didn't give them any any of the content of the book beforehand at all. Not really. So, in, in terms of the. Um behind the book we, we serialized it in the Sunday Times obviously the fact I work there uh, helped mm. with negotiations there uh, we pulled out a few stories from the Sunday Times we did a piece with the Today program we did a piece with Ian King on Sky and, and I think it's, it's quite a poppy topic so it's attracted mm. quite a few reviews in the FT and the Observer and the Sunday Times um, it's been quite well covered in that regard um, and I couldn't have really asked for more in terms of the coverage it's had because a lot of papers pull stories out of it on the Monday after the Sunday time. So the Sun on Sunday did something with our, with our agreements uh, the same day as the Sunday Times. And then plenty of papers pulled out lines for Monday. And there was, there was lots of goodwill, which is really yeah. nice to see because you know, journalists are sometimes rivals, but everyone sort of got behind the story and, um, and did their own angles, which was... Uh, very nice. Okay. Uh, lots, again, lots of people listening to this podcast are interested in the um, what's happening with Martin Sorrell at the moment, who's obviously faced accusations that, um, well, a number of accusations, one of them being that he bullied staff, which um, Mustadi is, is vigorously denied. Do you think there are any similarities between Philip Green and Martin Sorrell um, being very demanding, demanding, bordering on the aggressive? And are, are these days of the days of the all-powerful bosses coming to an end now? I know Philip Green and Martin Storrell are still in business, but are they from a bygone age, do you think? I think that age is definitely fading a bit. I think in, in the private markets, people like Philip Green were funded by huge amounts of debt, which is harder to get hold of now. So he did what he did in the early noughties because he could in those days. I think it would be very difficult to borrow the kind of sums he borrowed for BHS and Arcadia now mm. with very little equity especially for retail companies. Um, in the public markets, Sorrel, as you say, shows that the climate is changing and um, without sort of judging whatever Sorrel did or didn't do in terms mm. of the investigation, I think his his passing from WPP does show that corporate governance is getting stricter in general. And so I think in the private markets, it's hard for these owner-driver entrepreneurial tycoons to raise cash. In the public markets, you know, unless they have a majority shareholding like Mike Cash in the Sports Direct. Yeah. It's very hard to know when shareholders' mood starts turning. There will, there will always be self-made people who are successful. You know, people like Jim Ratcliffe mm-hmm. or um, Philip Dave on retail. Or, you know, in the tech space, huge tycoons like Elon Musk yeah. and uh, Mark Zuckerberg. But I think the days of those people who were very aggressive takeover merchants, which both Philip Green and Martin Sorrell were, they're both... 1980s men really products of that mm. decade when it was all about engineering empires through deals that's that's a lot harder to do now okay. um, and I think that the climate has changed against them maybe, maybe one day it'll change back again but I think um, that particular breed they're almost a product of their times yeah. it, was, it was a very 1980s thing they're both relics of that in a way Okay, uh, fantastic. And finally, um, yeah, lots of advertising people listening to this podcast. If they're, um, they want to make moves or try and get their, their, their brands or their stories into the pages of a Sunday Times, I guess that's quite difficult. What, what advice would you, would, you, would you give them? 
buying adverts. <laughs> um, in terms of PR, I think it's um, building relationships. So I think you're always more likely to listen to a pitch from someone you know. Yeah. And I think the way to get to know people is just through good ideas and good stories. Um, I mean, it, 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 there, there is no great secret to it, I don't think. It's okay. just having the right stories, being able to serve up interesting interviews, uh, having an awareness of what kind of stories suit what kind of paper or magazine and um, it is also timing to a degree we're very busy towards the end of the week so unless it's a red hot sort of scoop yeah. Tuesday, Wednesday tends to be a better time to call for a general chat than Thursday, Friday Excellent, alright, okay, thanks very much Oliver that's great, thank you Okay, so thanks for uh, joining me uh, tomorrow. So uh, I just picked up on a quote where you gave talking about the gender pay gap when I think you said you would be uh, 90 years old before there was uh, equality in the gender pay gap. I mean, do you still think there's, a, obviously you still think there's a big problem both in the US and the UK, I guess? There, there is. Um, it's still, you know, it's, it's, it's still a 20% difference worse for um, African-American and Latino women, um, which we're also, you know, very aware of. Um, and it's, you know, we're trying to now hold companies accountable um, and to take a look at the data. I think what's really going to change this is looking at data and really comparing it and then making a course correction if you find internally in your company that you are paying men and women unequally. Is there a particular problem in the, the fashion industry or have you noticed across, you know, multiple different industries then? Actually, we found out the fashion industry is one of the worst culprits, okay. um, which is which is crazy since we're, we're selling we're, we're selling to so many women, we hire so many women. So yeah, it, the fashion business actually needs to take a, take a look at itself. And you said your current business on stage you employ is it 95% women? I do. And that, yeah, what, what's the re that, that's what's the reason behind that? That, that's that was to really uh, support women and make sure that we're supporting women um, in their careers, and also it was about the culture that I wanted to build in the office. Okay. And what advice would you give to women, say, who are uh, uh, think they're hard done by in terms of what are getting paid compared to men? I mean, what would you? What advice would you give them just to have it out? You know, speak to the bosses about it. Or? Yeah, definitely. But you, but your your the best thing you have are facts take the data look at your peer group let make comparisons see what uh, men are being paid for the same position at other companies um, you know so go in with data and facts okay and finally I know you're rushing off so we're here in Cannes uh, is this the first time at the advertising festival and how long are you here for are you just giving one speech are you going to other talks too or um, yeah so we're just here um, I'm here to speak today um, and this is the first time I've been here. It's absolutely incredible. The speaker list is phenomenal. I was studying the speaker list yesterday and it was so incredible. Okay, right, okay, fantastic, thank you. Okay, so uh, thanks for joining me on the uh, the podcast, Hamish. Now, uh, Wavemaker is occupying a nice uh, plush part of the uh, prestigious Carlton Hotel. So obviously there's been lots of discussion this year about uh, publicists not being here. Um, but I take it for, for Wavemaker and for WPP more broadly, Cannes is still an important event to attend. Uh, abs absolutely is. I mean, certainly for Wavemaker, we launched in January this year, and we, you know, we are, we are a very large brand, but in terms of uh, awareness, it's pretty low. So for us, it's a really great opportunity to really um, lay out our stall, 
let people know what we, we stand for and what we're, what we're into and, and, and meet a lot of clients and prospects uh, throughout the process and obviously colleagues as well. Um, in terms of our space, yes, you're right. We're in a very, we're a very, very nice spot in the middle of the Quasette. For us, actually, it's, it's proved to be a very good investment because obviously we use it for, for WaveMaker, but also a lot of uh, Group M and uh, WPP companies also are using our space. So, you know, it's, it's worked out as a, a more efficient way of doing CAN than, than, than other, other, other routes. And how many, how many years have you occupied this terrace? And, and secondly, uh, has Wave, WaveMaker, has it got um, more or less uh, staff here this year? Because obviously uh, there has been grumblings from some um, agencies about the cost of can too. Yeah, I mean, this is the third year we've taken this space, and it's a it's a pretty special space in terms of location, just for proximity for everybody. So, uh, it's yeah, it's uh, quick. Um, in terms of, of, of number of delegates, you know, we actually have cut back a bit. And, you know, quite right, as you said, it's incredibly expensive to to be here. But I think what we've done is make sure that our focus is really has been a bit more um, a bit more strategic in terms of who attends and then how we use those people. So yeah, being a bit wiser because we have to be. I mean, th you know, th business is tough, and that's uh, true for everybody. Okay, so you work in new business. I mean, who have you noticed um, a difference in the delegates and the people you've been meeting? Is the more uh, tech people? Uh, more talked about consultancies nowadays. Have you noticed um, difference in the demographic of people attending Can this year? It's always, you know, everybody has an individual can and you never, it's very hard to kind of yeah. be very technical about it. I've, I've noticed a lot more Americans this year. I mean, it seems to be a very, very, and I don't, you know, obviously, the, you know, tech have been here for 10 years, so tech is not new. Tech is still very dominant in, in, uh, in can. I've noticed, actually, it seems to be a lot more Americans and, and actually the client constituency, so probably less agencies overall, mm. uh, probably the same or more clients. So certainly in terms of percentage, I would say more clients. Okay, and what's been the... Uh, you're obviously been busy with work. What's been the highlight so far of Canada? Have you got to see much? Have you got to see much on, on stage? Any of the awards? Have you been to any uh, boat parties? <laughs> Regrettably, it's uh, it's been quite hard work, actually. It's been more uh, no boats, uh, no parties, actually. Uh, I've, uh, I've, I've met up with a lot of clients in the last few days. For me, a couple of the, the highlights are I always participate in the um, Young Media Alliance, so uh, 40 of the, the world's smartest young media media talent, um, so I, I talk to them about what it takes to win new business these days, uh, and also I'm on a big diversity panel on, on Friday in Google um, to talk about the importance of diversity, so you know, they're, they're, they're two um, sort of temple events for me personally. Okay, so I mean, by the sounds of, of your, your answer so far, it sounds as though CAN continues to be uh, important strategically and in terms of meeting people, you know, you can see Wavemaker coming back for the foreseeable future, because obviously the organisers have made changes, haven't they? I think they've um, made it slightly cheaper cut down on the awards, so maybe I'm a bit happy with some of the, um, the cuts they've made. I, I, I can't talk for for, uh, for my entire exco. I mean, after after this event, we will we will assess the value of it. All I can say on a personal level is it's been a valuable uh, five days for me, and I've, I've done a lot and got a lot out of it. So um, for me, absolutely, it's something we should continue. Okay.